Have a seat, everybody, if you could. Appreciate it. My name's Nate. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, this morning, uh, before Bobby uh, preaches, I wanted to take a few minutes and talk together, reason together. Um, yesterday was another in a long series of horrible days in our country as there were two more mass shootings. And our response, <laughs> I got on Facebook and a buddy of mine who's a believer, a guy I went to college with, brother, his, his response was supposed to meme and it said, this is why I always, people ask, why do, why do you take a gun when you go to Walmart? Well, this is why. As if there weren't lots of people with guns at a Walmart in Texas. Um, people still died and I almost just can't take it anymore. <laughs> As a church, at times we get numb to what can we even do. And we fail to realize the number of tools we have at our disposal. We lean heavily on lament. And I'm not just talking about us this morning here, right? We always point out, obviously, there are believers all over the country, all over the city, all over the world that are meeting together, that are praying. I'm talking right now about all of us, not just here in this room. Our response is to just lean on the, the tool of lament. Oh, God, this is so horrible. How could this happen? Thoughts and prayers, right? Prayers for the first responders, prayers for the family of the victims. And we just pray and lament. And after a while, that just feels like that's not enough. And we forget that we have other tools, that we have prophetic tools to say out loud that if two suicide bombers had killed themselves in the name of Allah, we would be sending millions of dollars of fighter jets to other places in the world to bomb and kill people. Because they'd, we'd say we were attacked. That we as a society, when it's young white men killing people because they hate Hispanics. When that happens, you know, we just kind of shrug it off. Tweet about something else in a few minutes. So we prophetically can call that out and say that that is wickedness. That we as a society have a problem with blaming the other people who aren't like us. Throwing guilt on them. And we as a church have a responsibility to prophetically say that we reject that. We have other tools at our disposal. We have our own unity in an age in which the sickness of white nationalism specifically has what feels like exploded on the scene as if it wasn't already part of the inherent fabric of our country, as if it hadn't been around for a really long time, rearing its head. It's certainly in our face here every day. And we have a responsibility as a church to embrace our unity and our identity as believers in Jesus Christ, crossing national boundaries, crossing racial boundaries, which are made up and false anyway, and recognizing that we are all children of God. And when we represent unity to the world, we announce that we live under the reign and rule of our God, that our citizenship is in another kingdom. And our critique of this country and this citizenship is not for the purpose of destroying it, but for the purpose of restoring it and asking that America, too, would come under the reign and rule of God, because it is not, and it never has been. And we can't fool ourselves into thinking that it ever was. So we have unity, and we have prophecy, and we have lament. 
and we also have repentance. That this is also a tool. And when we look out at the world, we look out at these horrible things happening. And I think about my friend Michael, who's an FBI agent, a counterterrorism agent in Dayton, Ohio. They live in Dayton. He's based in the Dayton office. And I know right now exactly what he's doing and exactly what he's investigating. And I look at this and I can say, God, this world is so broken. I'm so tired of it. And I fail to use the tool of repentance in my own heart and life. The degree to which I've bought into the idea that what's mine is mine. And if somebody crosses me, I can take their life and I'm justified. This is a core founding idea inherent to so many of our values as a nation. And I've bought into that. And I believe that. And I can just be as tribal as anybody else about my people, this room, about Soma in large, about Indianapolis. I can be just as tribal as the next person. And I don't use the tool of repentance. So when we feel like we are facing just another day of impossible to process headlines and we want to get angry at presidents and senators and governors, and yeah, they all have lots of blame. And we want to get angry at, 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 at this people or that people. And we just feel like there's no response we have. We as a church have to. This morning, as we lament, we also have to repent. We also have to prophesy. And we also have to be unified. Because collectively, that is our only answer to these things. To reject the way this world is going to reject the policies of death and destruction across the globe in the name of protecting what's ours. It's wicked, and we have to repent of it. Join me in prayer, if you will. Jesus God, Lord, we are a people of unclean lips from a land of unclean lips. We are not worthy of being in your presence. We have participated in the oppression, the destruction of innocence. We have supported systems of death across the globe, and there's blood on our hands. And Lord, we are so sorry. And Lord, we lift up to you the broken and the hurting in Texas and in Dayton today and in California from earlier this week and from, and from, and from, and from, going on back now almost what feels like hundreds of years that we've been killing people in mass. And Lord, I, we pray that you would give us courage to speak boldness and truth in the face of a society that tells us that as long as unemployment is low, it's all good. As long as we're getting paid on Friday, it's all good. Lord, we ask that you would be our king, that you would make yourself plain. Lord, that you would help us to stand against the dark forces of this age because we know that our enemy isn't flesh and blood, but it's that there's a deceiver who's pulled the wool over the eyes of this world. Lord, we ask that you would make us one, that the world would know that you sent Jesus and have loved them even as you loved Jesus. Lord, that our unity would stand in direct opposition to those who feel that they are being replaced, to those who feel that conquering 
and destroying other countries, other peoples, other skins is their only answer to oblivion. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we ask that you would be with us now. Lord, you would, we ask that you would make us strong this week as we teach children, as we engage in the systems and structures across the city, that we would subvert the power of the evil one, that we would subvert the way that this nation is built and is going, and that we would be light and life and truth, that we would not be part of this culture of death. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Nate. My name is Bobby. I'm also one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we have been this year going through the book of Exodus together. And um, Exodus is a very timely book for us to be looking at together. Because in the book of Exodus, what we are seeing is that God is shaping and forming a people for himself. This is identity shaping, identity forming. God is teaching the people of Israel who he is and what it means for them to be his people. As he has rescued them out of Egypt, out of slavery, 430 some odd years of being oppressed, of being a people under the thumb of another nation. God delivers them and brings them out, not to just abstract freedom, not to just individual autonomy, but to be his people. And God's promise to the people of Israel is that as he delivers them out of Egypt, he's delivering them to a place that they can call their own a place where they will live with him, they will dwell with him, they will live under his rule, under his reign, under his system of being. Their lives will be characterized by what God says is good, what God says is right, what God says it means to flourish, to be righteous, to be just, to live with equity, ultimately to reflect his glory, his nature, his character to the nations of the earth. For those of us who have been in and around church for any length of time, we have some kind of engagement with the scriptures. You know, whether it's studying the scriptures on our own, whether it's listening to them being taught on Sunday, whether it's preparing to teach them in different formats uh, at, at, on Sundays or throughout the week, whether it's just reading them on our own, uh, in our own time with the Lord. The scriptures are such a vital, necessary part of what it means to be the people of God, understanding who God is, who we are, what the world is, what the world is about, what God is doing in the world. And an important question, a necessary question, maybe the most important question that we have to ask when we open up the scriptures is this. What does this teach me about God? 
What does this passage tell me about God? We are very, very good at looking at Scripture and saying, what can this passage give me? What can this passage tell me? What can it say about me? And we can read into the Scriptures through our own lens and our own experiences and our own wants and our own desires. But when we come to the Word of God, we have to ask and we have to begin with the question, what does this say to me? What does this teach me? What does this want to correct? What does this tell me about who God is and what He wants to know, me to know, about who He is? And that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Exodus 17, verse 8. And so if you have a Bible with you on your phone, you can use one of the Bibles provided on the seats. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, please take that as our gift to you. Last week, we traveled with the Israelites as they left the Red Sea, and the miracle that God performed there as they, they went from at one point <laughs> facing sure death and annihilation at the hands of the Egyptian army who had chased them down to watching God part the Red Sea, walk through on dry land to the other side, and then w- watching God close that water down and defeat the Egyptian army. Once and for all, they were free. They were finally free from their oppressors. And what we saw is that as they journeyed away from the Red Sea, they journeyed into the desert, into the wilderness. And it wasn't very long after that they began to forget what God had done for them at the Red Sea as they faced the harsh realities of the desert. No food and no water. But what did we see? We saw God show up and provide. God provided them food. He provided them with water. God's acts of deliverance, protecting his people, providing for his people, continued. And this morning as we look at this passage and we keep traveling with the Israelites, what we are going to see them, what we are going to see is that they run into another obstacle. And this time, it's not a lack of food. This time, it's not a lack of water. This time, they come face to face with a people, with another nation who is bent on their destruction. Another nation that stands in their way of what God is trying to do, what he wants for them. And what we're witnessing again here in the book of Exodus isn't a series of unfortunate events where God has to like wake himself up and jump to their rescue and then God can recede back and do what he needs to do to be God until the next thing comes up. No, what we're seeing is that over and over again, the Israelites are part of something bigger. They're part of a bigger plan, a part of a bigger purpose of what God is doing. That their day-to-day reality, that the obstacles that they face, the enemies that they come in contact with, all of these are players in a larger drama. And that God's commitment to showing up and providing, to being present, 
to protecting his people is because of God's unwavering commitment to his bigger plans and his bigger purposes. What he is doing in this world, what he was going to do in and through the Israelites to bring about redemption and restoration, to bless all the other nations of the earth. That's what we're going this morning. So Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held his hand, held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. We don't know much about Amalek or the Amalekite people. They were descendants of Isaac's son, Esau. They were a nomadic, desert-dwelling people. Josephus, who many years later was a Jewish historian, said that the Amalekites were the most warring of the nations around Israel in that region at that time. And it seems, as this passage is written, that the Amalekites come up against Israel for no reason, unprovoked attack. But think about it. God bringing this nation of millions of people through this desert land. They were encountering people who already lived there. People who already worshipped other gods there. People who had a way of life there. It makes sense that these people would feel threatened. It makes sense that these people would see this as a new nation coming to conquer them. And so they come up in order to protect their way of life. In order to protect their land. In order to protect their gods and their worship and their way of religion. They come up against Israel and they attack Israel. And Moses turns to a man named Joshua. This is the first time that Joshua is mentioned in the scriptures. And even though we are encountering him for the first time, he seems to be a well-known figure to the Israelite people. Moses tells Joshua to gather a group of men to go out to meet the Amalekites and to fight them. And what's interesting here is that up to this point, 
when God had intervened on behalf of his people to protect them from their enemies, their oppressors. God had used plagues. God had used miraculous acts of nature. God had used disease. But this time, the Israelites are called to fight. They step in. They have to go out and participate in their own defense. And the plan of Moses here, the details of these plan, this plan is significant. Because Moses says, tomorrow. Why should they wait against tomorrow, for tomorrow? The people are there. The fight is there. The fight is at their doorstep. But when you read throughout the book of Exodus, you will see that over and over and over again, the word tomorrow is used to signify something big, something special, something significant, that God is going to do something to step in, to protect his people on behalf of his people and on behalf of behalf of his purpose, to redeem his people, his redemptive and restorative acts. In, throughout the plagues, you will remember, Moses came to Pharaoh and said, tomorrow, tomorrow God will do this because of your stubbornness, because of your rebellion, because you will not listen to him. Tomorrow, 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 Moses said that he will take the staff of God. He will go up on this hill and he will take the staff of God, the same staff from Egypt, the same staff from the Red Sea, the same staff that just a few days earlier he had struck the rock and water had come from that rock to provide for God's people. He will take that staff and go up because that staff represented the power and the presence of God with them. Over and over again, that staff had become significant and had become symbolic of God's power. God's power on behalf of his people. Notice what happens. Notice what happens in this passage here. That as the battle rages on, the focus is not what happens on the battlefield. is it? The focus is what happens on that hill. The focus of this passage is what happened on that hill. Moses was there with the staff of God in his hands. And as long as that staff and his hands were raised up, the fighting men of Israel prevailed. But as soon as Moses got tired and his arms and that staff began to lower, the Amalekites prevailed. So two men her and Aaron's brother, or Moses' brother, Aaron, go up with Moses and help him and hold that staff up. Hold his hands and his arms up. And we're told here that Joshua defeats the Amalekites. This is a really unusual turn of events, isn't it? It's an unusual story. We're not told any more about what happened here than what's right here on this page. We're not told that Moses speaks any kind of words of prayer or intercession, crying out to God for his help. We're not told that that staff in his hands emanated any kind of power in and of itself. So why did Moses do this? Why was this his plan? Why was this his strategy? Well, here's my answer. I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know why Moses chose to do this, but remember, the book of Exodus is not written as eyewitness journalism, giving us every detail and every explanation and a blow-by-blow account of every single thing that happened. There were probably more explanations that were given that we don't have here. There were probably more, um, there was probably an understanding, some kind of an understanding that the Israelites had about why Moses was doing this. Little detail is given to us here, but in the detail that is given to us here, what we see, what we see is now an oft-repeated truth in the book of Exodus, that the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's, that he is the one who fights, that he is the one who comes in power and in might to protect his people. That it's not just about them working it out on their own. It's not just about their skill and their ability and their strategy, that God is in this, that God is working through this. And as we have walked through the Exodus story, we have seen over and over again that God comes to the aid of his people. From the moment that God made his intentions clear to Moses back in chapter 3, that he was going to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, and he was going to deliver them and bring them to a new life in a new place under his rule and reign, God has defeated every enemy and he has provided for their every need. There hasn't been a challenge. There hasn't been an obstacle. There hasn't been a need that these people have not fa- have faced on their own. God's power and God's presence has been with them every single step of the way. And this was such an important truth that God wanted his people to understand and to know that he told Moses, write it down. Write down what happened here. And write it so that Joshua knows what you're writing. That seems odd, doesn't it? Joshua was there. Joshua had experienced that. He was the one who had led the army out to defeat the Amalekites. So why did Joshua need to hear what God was telling Moses to write down? Well, it was because Joshua would be Moses' successor. Joshua would be the one who would lead God's people into Canaan. Joshua would be the one that would lead God's people as they faced more enemies, more nations, more people groups that would come up against them and try to defeat them and try to wipe them out. God knew that Joshua, just like all the people of Israel, just like us today, are prone to forget what God has done. When we face trials, when we face tragedy, when we face darkness and death and just the sin of this world, it is so easy for us to forget that God is in control, that God is powerful, that God has a plan, that God has purposes, and nothing, nothing in this world will stand in between God achieving those purposes and getting his glory. The battle and God's hand is in it, in this passage, is a forward-facing truth. 
It's a forward-facing event. It was meant to strengthen the collective faith and courage of Joshua and the future generations of Israelites that would come after. The altar that Moses built wasn't for sacrificing. It was for remembering. It was for remembering that the battle that they had just fought was done under the name of God and was done with his help because he was present there. At the beginning, I mentioned the significance of asking the question, what does this tell me about God? There are a lot of things here that we don't know for sure. We don't know exactly why the Amalekites attacked. We don't know exactly why Moses raised his staff. We don't know exactly why an actual battle here takes place instead of another way that God could have used to defeat the Amalekites. But what we do know is this, that the Amalekites were defeated, that God wanted his people to remember this moment, and that God promised to wipe out the Amalekites once and for all. So what does this passage teach us about God? Well, first, this story reinforces the truth that we have seen over the last few weeks, that God's power and his presence are available to his people in every circumstance they face. That God will provide for them when they're in need. That God will protect them when they're in danger. There's no obstacle that's too great for God to overcome. God doesn't change. God doesn't change. And he's the same today. He is the same today as he was back then. There is nothing that you face in your life, that I face in my life, that is too big for God. Each and every day we wake up. Each and every day we wake up, the power and the presence of the creator almighty God is ours. It's available to us. God cares about your daily needs. God cares and is aware of the obstacles and the attacks that you face. And he is not turning his back on us. He is with us. And he is not going to let us face any of these things alone. But that's often where we stop with this passage. That's often where we stop and we make this a lesson about facing our Amalekites, facing our giants, facing our enemies, the people, the situations, the experiences that are harmful to us, that are obstacles in our way, that are a threat to our way of life. We read this story much in the same way that we live our lives. Compartmentalized, segmented, disconnected from anything that's bigger, more comprehensive. And it feels like we keep coming back to this week after week. I don't know about you, it feels like that for me. That it's so easy for us to see our days and our weeks and our months and our years, to see the varying relationships and situations and, ex and experiences that we encounter as standalone parts of our lives. 
We fail to see the interconnectedness of it. We fail to see that these, are some, these things are part of something bigger that is going on in our lives, in our world. We can trust God for this over here, but maybe not this over here. We can need and depend on God for this thing, but we got this thing over here. We need God's help for this, but not that. God really cares for that and probably not as much for this. These aren't conscious choices that we are making to trust God or not trust God, to depend on God or not to depend on God, to be aware of God's presence in our life or not be. It's just how we live, right? We live as independent, self-sufficient people doing our best just to approach each and every day with some sort of purpose and intentionality and not living reactionary and not flying around by the seat of our pants. And sure, we're influenced by our culture, by our Western, modern, individualistic culture. But honestly, it's just part of being human. Because we see that God is addressing that here in this story. Remember, don't forget, because this is going to be significant down the road. God provides the most basic needs of food and water for his people. And for God, that was more than just keeping them alive in the desert for 40 years. God steps in here and protects his people from the Amalekites. But the Amalekites were bigger. They represented something bigger, a bigger reality that God wanted his people to understand. God is teaching us the same lesson, and it is this. That God dwells, that he operates in the past, in the present, and in the future at the same time. That is hard for us to understand. What he does in the present is connected to the past and has implications for what he will do in the future. Let me say that again. What God is doing now in our present, is connected to what God has already done in the past, and it has implications for what God wants to do and what God will do in the future. That God operates in a much bigger way than we are aware of. And that so often we live our lives just day to day to day without understanding that what we are experiencing today is part of something bigger that God is doing now and that what God is doing has done in the past and what God will do in the future. The Amalekites, just like the Egyptians, would live to fight another day. They will continue to be a thorn in the side of the Israelites. If you've ever read the book of Esther, you know that at that time, years after this, God's people face extermination. They face genocide. They face being wiped off the face of the earth at the hands of a government official named Haman the Agagite. Haman was a descendant of King Agag, who was king of the Amalekites. These people would continue 
to be a thorn in the side of God's people. And they represented just like the nations of Babylon, just like the nation of Egypt, just like so many other of these people groups and nations that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament. They will continue to to be active enemies of God and his people. And that is something that God wants his people to understand here in this moment. That's why they build the memorial. That's why they write it down. They will have to fight again. They will have to encounter this kind of attack, this kind of opposition again. Because God is being attacked. Because a war is being waged against God. These people were nations that were not only attacking the people of God, they were attacking God himself. That as the Israelites would move through the desert, as they will move into the land of Canaan, God will judge all of these other nations for their idolatry and their injustice and their refusal to acknowledge him as God. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the song of Moses This song that Moses penned after God's miracle at the Red Sea. Listen to these words again. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as stone until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. And if you fast forward into the book of Joshua, we meet a prostitute named Rahab, living in the city of Jericho. And she tells two spies, Israelite spies, whom she hides and protects from the officials of her city. She tells them this, listen, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. And when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of Jordan, whom you completely destroyed, we have heard of it. Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and on the earth below. The people the nations that Israel would encounter knew that Yahweh was the one true God. They had seen him work. They had seen him move. They had seen him protect his people. They knew, and yet they still attacked. And yet they still resisted. They still rebelled from bowing down and acknowledging Yahweh as the one true God. They stood against God's people because they stood against God himself. And God takes that personally. God takes that personally. 
They were players in a larger drama, a greater scheme to undermine God's authority, to undermine his way and his way of life, his rule, his reign, his purposes. And the outcome of this battle with the Amalekites was further proof for God's people how much the lengths that God is willing to go to protect his name and to make sure that his purposes are accomplished. This was a forward-facing act. That's why they were to build a memorial and remember it. And that's why we should too. As Nate mentioned earlier, so often we can read passages like this. And we can look at ourselves as being the people that God uses to judge all the other people. And we fail to recognize how often we can stand against God's purposes. How often we can stand against the plan of God to bring redemption and restoration to this world. How we can unwittingly put ourselves up against God's way of life. What he says is good. What he says is true. What he says will truly bring flourishing. What ultimately will reflect him. And this is a sobering passage for us because so often we read ourselves into the Israelite people when we also need to be aware of how much we can be like the Amalekites. We need to be convicted by that. We need to be aware of that. We need to walk with great humility with that understanding. But we can also take comfort in knowing that God will work on our behalf. That as we follow him, as we trust him, as we submit to his rule and to his reign in our lives as individuals and collectively as a people, that God will defend us. That God will work on our behalf because it is part of his bigger plan. Your life and what you face is part of a bigger purpose of God. My life and what I go through is part of God's bigger desire. Not just that I would know him, but that peoples all over this earth would know him. That his glory would be made known throughout the ends of the earth. And when I think about things like the slow, painful death of our dreams that we have, when I think about the people that we encounter who inflict pain and hurt, on us, when I think about the systems and institutions that we live within that perpetuate injustice, when I think about these mass shootings and the loss of life and the darkness and the death and the pain and the sorrow and the grief that we wake up to almost every single day, we lose heart. We're frustrated. We're on the verge of giving up. We can't understand, we can't see. It is in these times that God's power and presence comes to us to give us comfort. His spirit strengthens us and gives us wisdom and brings us peace. We are lifted by his presence to persevere in the face of unbelievable darkness. We build memorials to that and we write those things down. Remembering is worship. Remembering is worship. It strengthens our faith. 
It builds our collective resolve, and it reinforces God's power, his presence, and his plans, that they are the same yesterday. They are the same today, and they will be the same tomorrow, no matter what we face. I want to close this morning with Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You can turn there if you want. Hebrews chapter 11 is that famous passage that records all of these individual acts of faith. Over and over again, people are commended for showing faith when they could live in unbelief, for trusting God when they could have trusted others or themselves, for following God's way and his will when it would have been much easier to do the exact opposite. And chapter 11 closes with these words, referring to all of these folks that were just mentioned. These were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us, they would be made and then chapter 12 begins this way, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus dealt sin and death a resounding blow, defeat at the cross. And yet sin and death lived to fight another day, didn't they? And we experience that here. We experience the weight of that now. But even though that is our present reality, Jesus is death and resurrection secured for us an ultimate reality. That one day, after God's enemies have mounted assault after assault, trying to stave off the inevitable, God will bring about their ultimate defeat and destruction. The enemies of God, the spiritual powers that are arrayed against him will be defeated. That death and injustice and sorrow and grief and pain will be no more. That's what the writer of Hebrews says that the people in that chapter that he mentioned, they haven't experienced that yet. We haven't experienced that yet. But one day, they will receive with us what God originally intended, a life, a body, a life, a world that is exactly what he means it to be. One that is free from sin and death. 
and one that is inhabited by his presence and his glory forever and ever and ever. And the writer of Hebrews encourages them and us to look to Jesus when we are weary, when we are in danger of losing hope, when we are tempted to run in fear. And this isn't a call to persevere like Jesus. Just be like Jesus and and stick it out. Persevere like Jesus. It's a call to look at the result of Jesus' perseverance. It's a call to look forward to what Jesus secured for us because of his death and his endurance. The fact that he went to the cross and died for us and for the life of this world. When we do that, we can be prophetic in these times. We can stand up and we can say, this is not right. This is not what God says is good. This is not what God says is true. We can push forward because we know, we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against the enemies of God who since the beginning of time have been on attack and been in war mode against him. And we can live in faith and we can live in hope because one day we know because of what Jesus did, that that reality that we will be, that we will experience forever and ever will be one where God rules and God reigns and life will be as God intends. And so this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to come and I want you to take a piece of the bread. I want you to dip it in the juice. We'll have stations up here on either side. We'll have a gluten-free station in the back for those who need that. As you do that, I want you to do it with the... I want us together to remember and to proclaim the reality to our weary hearts. Proclaim the reality in the midst of this darkness that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ is coming back again. Praise God. Praise God that he has done that for us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this hope. We thank you for this word, and we pray that you would strengthen, that you would strengthen her weak knees that you would strengthen our weary hands, that you would strengthen and uphold our hearts that are heavy because of what we experience in this life. And I pray that your spirit would make this truth real to us, that it would make it real to us that you have won the victory that we can face today, we can face tomorrow, knowing that we are players in a bigger drama, a drama that's already been written, that's already, the ending has already been written. I pray that we would be a people of prophetic hope in this city, that we would not be cynics, that we would not be deconstructors, that we would not be people who just cast stones from a distance, but that we would be a community of resilient, prophetic hope, pointing people to the life that is found in you. Life with God, 
under the rule of God that you intend for all people to know and to experience. I pray that people would see that and experience that in us. That when they see people at Soma Northwest, they would say, I know what God is like. And I know what life with God is like. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.